Hello, and welcome to the SAMOP Specialty Spotlight Podcast. This podcast was created to help inform military medical students about experiences and opportunities in military medicine. We aim to interview physicians either currently in or retired from the military from all branches of service in various specialties. Today, we are fortunate to have Commander Mara with us. Commander Mara is a Navy family medicine and sports medicine physician. She's a regimental surgeon and a senior medical officer of one of the Marine-centered medical home clinics on Camp Pendleton with Combat Logistics Regiment 17. Her past career accomplishments include being the primary care representative and then chair for the transgender care team for Navy Medicine West region. She's done a lot of work in LGBT plus primary care and work with transgender athletes and is also the Diversity and Inclusion Officer of the American Medical Women's Association Military and Veterans Chapter. We've chosen to interview her for a special Pride Month episode, given her personal and professional experiences as an advocate for the LGBT plus community. Thank you so much for being here with us today, ma'am. How are you doing? Great, thank you so much for having me. We really appreciate having you on today, and I'm super excited about this very special and important LGBT plus episode. To begin, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? For example, where are you from? What medical school did you attend? Where you trained for residency and your family? Sure. I grew up in New England in Massachusetts, a little town called Lakeville, about a half an hour outside of Boston. And I grew up on somewhat of a rural setting, a farm, and we had, you know, the chickens, the turkeys, etc., and a child of two pharmacists. So medicine was always in my family. And I decided that I would be going to college in Rhode Island. So I went to Providence College in Rhode Island for my undergrad. As I was growing up, I found out more and more about being an osteopathic physician. And so it turned out I ended up going to Unicom, the only osteopathic medical school in New England. So I graduated in class of 2008 and did my residency training at Camp Pendleton in California, and I went straight through, so I definitely enjoyed that. Right now, I'm living in Ramona, California on a six-acre ranch with my wife and our little one, who's almost three years old. Oh, and my sister actually was also a Navy family medicine doctor. She just got out about a year ago, Kelly Brown, so. Thank you so much for sharing that. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal story as an LGBT plus member and situations you've had to navigate, just coming out, fertility treatment, starting a family, et cetera? Sure. I came out first to my friends and family when I was in high school briefly and talked to them about, well, I I think I might be, you know, a lesbian or bisexual or something. No, no, no. we're, We're not sure that's right. But as I kind of grew up and, and signed on the dotted line, I stopped talking about it because Don't Ask, Don't Tell was in effect at that point in time. When I got into the military, I said, well, you know, maybe it was just a phase in college or something. And then when I met my now wife, when I was out of residency and stationed out in 29 Palms, that was when I, I started talking to my family again about, no, I am bisexual and, and this is something that we're going to talk about. And When my wife and I first started dating, I wasn't sure how open I wanted to be at work because I had done the majority of my training in a time where you couldn't talk about if you were dating or married to somebody that was the same gender as you. 
And so it definitely was a learning curve and she definitely gave me support to be able to speak out and talk to people more about my experience and hopefully empower other people to talk about their experience too, because I, I do feel like representation is very important. And then as far as for other situations that we've come across, so I actually usually give a lecture to the, the family medicine residents at Camp Pendleton about how to make a rainbow family because my wife and I ended up doing fertility treatment actually through the military. So I get to tell them a lot about how people come to being a family in many different ways. And so if you do have the ability in a near military treatment facility that offers infertility treatment, that LGBT families can benefit from this as well. So those are some of the situations we've gotten to uh, maneuver as a family, but every little situation teaches me a little bit more and makes me a little bit better of a, a physician too, I think. Thank you so much for sharing that. Is the fertility treatment covered by the military? Yeah, so a portion of it actually is, and that was what was really interesting to learn. I didn't know much about it until probably I was about 30 years old, 32 years old. I was getting a little closer to advanced maternal age, which is a concern for me and, and happens with many physicians, many female physicians at least, as they kind of move forward and try and plan that perfect time. So I, I definitely started talking more about egg banking or... IVF, IUI, all those kind of different options and what would be covered and what wouldn't be. And I actually was pleasantly surprised to find out a decent amount of it is actually covered at about five locations in the military across the different services. It's always very nice to, to learn about some of the benefits and through some of the variety of groups that I've been able to work with, the Female Force Readiness Advisory Board, they actually are working on making sure this benefit is known to more people and also make sure that hopefully even maybe more can be covered in the future. So that's awesome. That that is definitely an amazing benefit that I'm sure that a lot of students would be interested in potentially pursuing. Why did you decide to join the military, ma'am? I actually come from a military family, not everybody in my family is military, but my grandfather was a CB in World War II. And my aunt was an Air Force nurse. Uh, she's also my godmother and was in for about, I think, eight years before she decided to transition out. And she always spoke so enthusiastically about her experiences as an Air Force nurse. And so it, it was really cool to hear. As I was applying to medical schools, I heard from friends and colleagues about the HPSP program, which financially was a great option as well. And as I talked to more and more people that were in the military, it's like, well, you know, they want you to stay active overall. Your patients that you care for are usually young and healthy and overall very happy for the care they get. So it just seemed like a great opportunity for me. I wasn't sure how long I'd stay in, but it definitely seemed like a place I wanted to start my career in medicine. Now, how long do you think you're going to stay in? That's a great question. So I go by the adage told to me by a captain in the Navy who said, you know, Janelle, when you come into the military, you should treat it like you might be getting out in a year and plan like you're going to be staying in for 30. So <laughs> I'm at 13 years right now this summer. So I graduated medical school in 2008. Due to the recent bonuses I signed, I'll be in for at least three more years. And my current set of orders are another two to three years. So 
um, or probably another one to two years. So that being said, I'll stay in as long as I'm enjoying it. And as long as my family is in a place where we feel appreciated and safe. So right now here in California, there's, it's a pretty good environment for LGBT families. So, and my, my son is EFMP as well. And so again, we do have a lot of resources out here that we wouldn't have in certain other locations. I'm definitely very grateful that my detailer, my specialty leader, all are helping me find elevated positions in the location that I'm in right now. Not everybody's lucky enough to be able to do that. That's awesome. I'm glad that you have so much support. Man, what led you to pursue your specialty of family med and sports medicine? Well, it's interesting because at the, the time I remember making this decision was actually at an AMOPS conference when I was in Edson. Oh. So um, I was at an AMOPS conference, my first AMOPS conference. I was tagged to drive around now retired Admiral Jeffries. I was his driver. I drove him over to where we were going to eat and everything else like that. Well, what do you want to do? I said, well, sir, I don't, I don't really know. I've done some internal medicine rotations. I, family medicine seems really cool too. And him being the, the face and the, the voice of family medicine, especially at AMOPS, need to be a family medicine doctor, Dr. Mara. So tell me more, sir. Why should I be a family medicine doctor? And he said, well, do you want to take care of everybody from, you know, birth all the way to the, you know, hospice care and death? Do you want to deliver babies? Do you want to do sports medicine? Well, then family medicine is the path for you. And let me tell you why, you know, probably about five or 10 minutes talking to me about why it was so amazing. And, and I, if I was on the fence, then I was not on the fence after that. So <laughs> I really did enjoy the musculoskeletal medicine and the OMT sections of my training. And so sports medicine always seemed like a path I was very interested in. So when I heard that there were space available in the fellowship and the the program director said, you know, I think this is a good year for you to apply. I applied and was lucky to get in on my first time. That's kind of how I I managed uh, my career up to this point in time and how I made the decision. So. At what point in your career did you apply for the sports medicine fellowship? Typically in the Navy, we will have a period of time where you serve as a GMO or a staff physician before you can apply for a fellowship. So I went straight through my residency, so three years in family medicine, and then ended up at 29 Palms as a staff family physician. And due to them switching the billet, I actually only ended up there for a two-year set of orders. So I actually applied after being out of residency for only about a year, year and a half, and was able to go back in. So with only a two-year gap between the end of my residency and the start of my fellowship. Okay, perfect. And that actually leads me to my next question, ma'am. Where have you been stationed and what different positions have you held in your military career thus far? Yeah. So out of residency, which I mentioned I did at Camp Pendleton, I served as a staff family physician out in 29 Palms. And some of my collateral things I got to do there included things like being on the MSQC, which works with credentialing of providers. And I started up an OMT clinic there and really kind of got my feet wet with what being a Navy family medicine doctor was all about. Well, from there, I was able to go and, and match to my fellowship. So that was a one-year fellowship back at Camp Pendleton is currently the only location for Navy sports medicine physicians to train for the fellowship. From there, I actually... Despite my my initial hesitation, ended up billeted to Okinawa, Japan. And I say initial hesitation because I met my wife when I was, just before I started my fellowship and we got married 
and she is a college professor. And so I was like, okay, keep me in the States. She can keep teaching. We'll figure it out. And they're like, here's what we got for you. Okanawa, okay. Japan. <laughs> like, okay. So <laughs> we the did needs our, of the Navy. <laughs> needs of the Navy. So uh, we, we did our, our legal wedding before I shipped off to Japan, like less than three weeks before I shipped off. I promoted to Lieutenant Commander and got married. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, it was, it was an exciting time, but I was there in Okinawa, Japan for two years because it did end up being a geobatch tour. There I worked as a department head, which was an awesome experience. I got to learn a lot about how to work with my corpsmen, my IDCs, how to train a variety of different people that I worked right next to the GMOs in the branch clinic and really learned a lot about being a leader in, in the Navy. And so that, that was a, an excellent experience for me. Also, the one thing I will say about some of the tours that initially you think, I don't know if I want to do this, or they're in more remote locations. Many times there you meet friends you're going to have for life. Several people that were in my wedding, several people that I, I call on a weekly basis now, all I met in places like 29 Palms in Okinawa, Japan. That's one thing I would tell people, you know, some people say, oh, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. And I guess that's a bit of it, but you definitely get what you put out of these, the different locations that you end up in. When I came back from Okinawa, I was ended up at uh, MCRD San Diego, which is the West Coast training location for Marines. Uh, was previously just male Marines recently. They actually had their first integrated class. So as far as things go, it was great for me to kind of come back there because that was my first experience in Navy sports medicine was actually at MCRD as an ensign, as a rotation in medical school. So I was back there. It was due to be a three-year set of orders, but actually what ended up happening was a spot opened up for the assistant program director up at the fellowship. And teaching is something I've always loved to do. And I was able to teach some of the residents at the location I was at, at MCRD, but I wasn't able to teach family medicine residents or the sports med fellows. So I unfortunately had to cut my time there short, but I did get to be integrated into the initiation of the transgender care team before I left. So that was an awesome experience because the trans ban was just being repealed at that point in time and transgender service members were being able to serve openly. And so I got my foot in the door to be the primary care representative to the team and work on educating people on the role of family medicine in LGBT healthcare, specifically transgender healthcare, uh, gender affirming care, transition, things like that. So, and it was amazing to be part of that historic event that cared for over 300 transgender service members and help them in their transition. Then up at uh, Camp Pendleton, I served as the assistant program director for three years. And during that time, I learned definitely how to be a better teacher because we did faculty development and things like that. So I worked with both the family medicine residents and the sports med fellows. I got to do some more research, get some more publications under my belt, continued to work with the transgender care team and eventually actually took over as chair and really got to move some policy forward. After I left there, I came to my now current job, which is the regimental surgeon over at CLR 17, serving with the Marines, which is something I've actually been hoping to do since I left residency. But the set of orders I initially got to the Marines back in residency ended up turning into the hospital. So anyways. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much, ma'am. You mentioned that you were involved in 
pushing forward some policies with the transgender care team. Can you discuss that a little bit more in detail? Yeah, of course. As far as my work in LGBT healthcare and, and specifically the transgender open service, one of my first places I was involved in was actually in Okinawa, Japan, because I was in Okinawa when it first came about that the repeal was coming and that trans service members were going to be able to serve openly. At that point in time, I was serving as the president of OutServe Okinawa, which is now AMPA, which is an advocacy group for LGBT service members. Many people came to me asking healthcare questions. And I said, gosh, I better study up a little bit more. I didn't learn much in my med school or residency on LGBT healthcare. So now's the time to learn. So I became a little bit of a subject matter expert on things like PrEP and gender affirming care and surgery and what we do in, in medicine, which is learn after you finish your training. I was very grateful to kind of start the learning process there and be able to act as a patient advocate for several of our service members that had questions. When I came back stateside was when things actually started moving forward. And I sat on a panel for one of the residencies at Balboa and MCSD at the time and talked a little bit about primary care and healthcare and the trans community. From there, actually, one of the people that was in the room actually was helping set up the transgender care team. That was great because she said, hey, we still need a primary care representative. Why don't you be our primary care representative? And so I was able to be involved in the very beginning stages where we were setting up the policies and setting up treatment plans and learning what issues we might run into moving forward. It was nice to have a seat at the table and to be able to speak for many of my friends and colleagues who were openly serving on some of the issues they ran into and also be able to try and fix any of the issues that we have run into. I also, as part of that job, got to debrief people on their care plans and got to check in with them about usually every six months to make sure their, their care was going well or what issues they were running into and then help direct them to the right people to be able to assist with that. Other things I've been able to do in LGBT healthcare through the Uniformed Services Academy of Family Physicians Conference, over the past probably five years or so, I've given at least one lecture on LGBT healthcare topics. So whether it be safer sex for WSW or lesbian and gay women, or whether it be how to make a rainbow family, talking about fertility treatments in, in uh, LGBT families, or talking about trans health 101 or LGBT healthcare 101, anal pap smears. Those are all some of the things I've been able to kind of bring forth and, and teach people a little bit more about. Awesome, thank you so much. You mentioned the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy earlier. Can you discuss a little bit more about how it was serving under that policy for both yourself and colleagues of yours? It was an interesting time. I remember when I was in Boston at the Boston Mets signing my package. And one of the things that was on there was the sheet that they said, you have to initial next to this, this sheet of paper. And I was like, really? It's like, so what happens if, if the answer is, is not what you want to hear on one of these, you know? Um, and they said, just sign it. <laughs> you have to sign it if you want to serve. And I said, well, okay. And I, I'm a pretty, you know, honest broker. I, I don't like fibbing, but I was like, you know, I really want to serve my country. And so, and so sorry, man, sorry what was the, oh, yeah. what was the sheet that they had you sign? <laughs> it was a piece of paper that had a variety of different statements, including things like, Never have I ever kissed another person of the same gender. Never will I ever get married to somebody of the same gender. 
never will I ever, you know, and I joke because that's kind of going back and looking at it. Like it, I, I think I still have it in my desk drawer somewhere. It's, you know, now much more coffee stained than, you know, <laughs> than it was and not part of my official record anymore, but it was for a period of time. Yeah. <laughs> that was don't ask, don't tell. They, wow. they ask you to know that you, whatever you may have done, you do not speak about it <laughs> and you won't speak about it forever and ever. Amen. Basically. That was pretty much the only time in my adult life I can think of fibbing about something major. And I was like, well, guess I just won't date women while I'm in the Navy. Passing privilege as a bisexual female with long hair and that occasionally wears dresses, you know, that quote unquote typical woman, I was able to pass. Then in the last year of my residency, so I was a, a third year, we had this survey that came out that was like, well, how would you feel about don't ask, don't tell being repealed? And how would that impact your job? And how would that impact you personally? And again, I hadn't really come out to most of my friends or colleagues at that point in time as bisexual, not because I feared that the military would kick me out as much as some unfortunate younger people in a variety of other environments were, but more so because it just didn't seem like something I should do. But I definitely honestly answered the questions on there and said, you know, hey, I can't do an adequate job counseling my patients on safer sex if I don't know the types of activities they're engaging with and who they're engaging with. I can't appropriately address the support system for this person if they don't feel comfortable coming out to me. This really does impact health and readiness of your service. And if that's what you care about, this should be repealed. It sounds like, of course, as it rolls out, this was more of a, hey, we just want to hear and get a finger on the pulse of what the troops think. Luckily, it did sound like the majority of the troops felt very similarly to myself and said, this is a good thing. This will help us. This will bring people together. It's not meant to be divisive. And certainly when I was at my first staff bill, it was when it officially was repealed. It was interesting, and there was definitely some training to do with some of my junior corpsmen who still wanted to say, oh, that's so gay. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, do you mean that's awesome? Is that why that's gay? Oh, well, ma'am, you know what I mean. No, no, tell me. Tell me what you mean. <laughs> so there was definitely a learning curve. And at that duty station was when I first started dating my wife. The first couple military functions I took her to, she still affectionately jokes about how I talked to about her as my friend. <laughs> But I was, I was still a little nervous and I wasn't sure I wanted to be as arrogant as it sounds. I didn't want to be viewed as the face of LGBT military medicine. I was like, well, I, I don't know if I want to be that person. And as I've kind of come forward and realized how important visibility is, I, of course, have very much embraced the role and been like, no, I'll tell everybody. I'll tell anybody that wants to hear more about my experience and why diversity is so important and, and not just diversity, but diversity and inclusion is so important. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's been a little bit about my journey under Don't Ask, Don't Tell and its repeal. And then of course, as many of the transgender service members I serve with say, remember, it was only the LGB that came when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. The T, we are now just getting back into open service again, because as it was on and off and on, there's still a lot of nervousness amongst much of the community and worries that it could get repealed again. I like to, again, say as more and more people are visible and going up through the community, I think that is less likely to happen. And certainly, again, as more people meet and serve, 
with people that they know are now openly transgender, the more they're like, this person is important on the team. Do not kick them off. Do this one small little piece of themselves. You mentioned that you wanted your patients to feel safe and discuss sexual activities with you so that they could practice safe sex. Were you required as a physician to report somebody if they did mention that they had sex with somebody of the same gender? Luckily, at least at the location I was at, we were never told to do something like that to report somebody. If something came up in a setting like that, we were encouraged to treat them and move on. It did make us slightly more cautious on how we documented things in the medical record, I think, because ultimately your medical corps officers will be able to review that in the future. And so certainly if your next command felt strongly and wanted to go on a witch hunt for LGBT service members, that was a possibility. And many physicians like myself are very cautious about how we documented things in the record. Now that that policy has been repealed, how do you think LGBT plus military members are now treated within the military? So I definitely think we've come a long way. <laughs> um, now that we just had one of the highest training, she's a three-star army uh, general that just retired and had her wife at the ceremony and was able to talk about her wife openly. Now I know somebody that's a captain that's been in OIC at a location with her wife and her children there, Oconus and different locations. And so the visibility factor really has improved. And that's a big thing because, you know, as you come up through a community, if, if you don't see it, you don't think you can be it. It's always awesome to hear about the first in the LGBT community openly serving and it's unfortunate that it hasn't been captured more up to this point in time, because I think, again, the vestiges of Don't Ask, Don't Tell are still that many people view your sexual orientation and gender identity as a private thing that shouldn't necessarily be broadcast. And so therefore saying that somebody is the first out gay, whatever, or the first lesbian, whatever, is viewed as something that doesn't need to be broadcast. And because it couldn't be broadcast for so long, it was like, well, you can't prove that that was the first lesbian that was serving as that. It's like, well, but this is the first one that we're going to talk about. While many people say, well, why is it so important to talk about firsts? It's important so that person won't be the last. Because again, you don't want to be the first and the only. You want to be the first and many will come after you. As far as things go, I mean, the pride celebrations have become more and more amazing at the commands I've gone to now. I mean, there's the DOD pride that has its posters every year. The communities really are doing a better job about being out there and talking to people about it. And if an issue comes up that it impacts the community, like saying, this is why this is important to talk about. And now more and more LGBT people are in a variety of different communities and they can speak out and they can have their voices heard and not be afraid that they will be kicked out just due to their sexual orientation or gender identity. So again, I think it is making things overall much more representative, which is important in any line of work. I definitely agree, ma'am. And I appreciate you discussing the importance of firsts and why they matter, because I have often heard people say, oh, why are we talking about this senator's sexual orientation? It's not important but that's because they come from a place of privilege and they don't realize that it's important because this group of people have been marginalized in society and oppressed. And that is why it matters because it's important that they are now accepted as they should have always been. 
and I always talk to people about, again, the intersectionality comes in too. So they're like, well, you just added like five descriptors in there. It's like, yeah, but this was the first out LGBT female black person, which each of these has a different level. I mean, when you look through your military history, you're like, okay, well, females started serving here. Well, look how long it took to get your first female CEO of a hospital, for example, that just happened like two years ago, not even. Wow. So, I mean, that when you, when you start looking through, you're like, okay, gosh, you know, so there's this whole level with this community. Well, then you layer it on. And again, that intersectionality as that comes in, it's important to notice and identify and not necessarily say, well, again, this was tokenism or anything else like that, but that it's important to talk about it because if you don't talk about it, people don't realize like, really, there's never been a black female CEO of a hospital until 2020 or 2019. Oh gosh. Hmm. Or at least a, a physician, a black female physician CEO of a hospital. It's definitely important. And once again, that's why I think this episode is so important. And I hope our listeners can take a lot from this and go into their careers as physicians, like supporting this cause so that more, more military members feel safe within that community. What further changes do you believe need to be made regarding the treatment of LGBT plus military members? Someday I wish there could be more, again, representation. So where your pictures that are in the waiting room have pictures of all different colors and all different couples and all different families, all different gender expressions. The Do Ask, Do Tell campaign that was put out by the LGBT healthcare organization, that was a big step forward. I would love to be able to see that in every waiting room in all of the military, not just in the ones that I'm in. That I'm like, oh, these flyers are gonna go up because I think it's important. Again, viewing these important firsts for LGBT service members and having them captured and represented moving forward is going to be important because, again, if you don't know your history, you can't move forward. And so capturing those stories, I know there was an awesome photograph book that, again, one of my mentors in the military, her and her family were in as Don't Ask, Don't Tell was being repealed. So capturing that history and making sure, again, people understand and move forward from it because you don't want to go back. That's when things don't go as well. (laughs) Representation is so important. I was actually speaking with a family friend who is a master chief and he is in charge of a recruiting station. And he mentioned that there is a wall of white men that were all the past leaders of that recruiting station. And he's also a white man, but he was like, I need to take that down. How would somebody who is a person of color or female or anybody who's, who's not a white male who walked into that recruiting office, how would they feel when they look at that wall of only white men? That just reminded me of that conversation that I had with him. And we talk a lot about with the Female Force Readiness Advisory Board retention of those diverse individuals as you recruit them. So again, to end up on that wall, you have to stand over your 20 years many times. And so making sure people feel valued as a part of the readiness of the military. And one of the excellent quotes I saw as Don't Ask, Don't Tell was being repealed is how they talked about, again, this is not a social experiment. This is part of our readiness. Having a variety of different groups of people is important to move forward. So you don't have blind spots because if you have never been exposed to this ethnicity, this religion, you're going to have a blind spot and not know what you don't know. 
So it's important to always be learning about people that are different than yourself. Yes, ma'am, absolutely. Moving a little bit more into transgender athletes, can you discuss your work with them and the stigma associated with particularly male to female transitions in sports competitions? Because I know a lot of people say it's quote unquote not fair. So can you discuss the effect of hormones on their ability to compete? Yeah. And so I actually just wrote an article for AFP and it's certainly not an advocacy piece, but it is just to, again, make sure family medicine doctors are thinking about transgender athletes and their role in their lives. Again, an athlete can be somebody that's in kindergarten or pre-K all the way up to our, you know, geriatric athletes that are still competing. And they can be people that are flag football on Fridays all the way up to elite athletes. And so certainly one size doesn't fit all, but when we talk about how important exercises and the whole exercises medicine campaign, it is so important to remember the value of sport and the value of exercise and that moving forward, it's not just when somebody's playing that sport, but carrying through their whole life, the benefits of sport will continue. There is certainly many people that have discussions on, well, is it fair? Is it right for somebody who had been exposed to testosterone at X point in their life that now is competing as a female? And I will say the more literature I review and the more policies I review, it does seem to target more towards our male to female or patients that have undergone feminizing treatments of any kind, which is interesting to me, but we can always get back to that later. So as far as things go, I always tell people that athletics are built on, there will be certain things that will make people a better athlete. That could be that they're taller. It could be that they have more fast twitch to slow twitch muscle fibers. It could be that their lung capacity is bigger. It could be that their bones are stronger. Any variety of these things could be, and they are not always tied to somebody's gender. You can have a six foot three person that is a cisgender female and a five foot eight cisgender male. And you know, that six foot three cisgender female or non-transgender female is going to be a better basketball player. That's not gender related. That is height related. We don't try to handicap people based on height. Typically there are some sports that do handicap based on weight class. And again, that is through to make sure, again, that a sense of fairness or a concern about injury or a variety of reasons. I don't want to necessarily say that there is a simple fix. I do think it's important to look at inclusion in sport. And again, balancing fairness in sport with not being discriminatory towards one solitary group of individuals, i.e. transgender females as a whole. That's something that I, I like to bring up. And again, more and more sports have begun creating policy around LGBT, specifically transgender athlete participation. Transathlete.com is an excellent place. I usually direct people towards if they want to learn more about transgender athlete policies throughout life. And it, they usually have some nice little snapshots on there that'll show the US uh, map and kind of give you a color coding on if your state has any anti-trans laws on the books or is pending any. Because again, as physicians, it is important for us to get out there and, and share our medical knowledge on why some of these rules are based on fear and not facts. So it is important to try and bring science into the equation. Now, with that being said, there is still a lot of scientific data out there to collect. When you look at the, the end of studies that have been done looking at 
any sort of transgender athletes right now, the number is small, despite the fact that transgender athletes have been competing in one way or another in Olympic sport for decades. It is interesting that, again, the lack of inclusion in LGBT or SOGI data, sexual orientation, gender identity data in research. I do think that will begin to change and, and we will see more representation and be able to have more science. And I would like to think that science would lend us to being as inclusive as we can be. Are you looking to be involved in any research within that area in the future? Oh, I would definitely love to be involved um, moving forward in any, any research with the LGBT community to move forward good studies or even review of prior studies, like putting things together or review of um, even surveys or things like that. There's many things out there, I think, that are ripe for the taking. And again, now that people are openly serving more, it is becoming more of a demographic that we can collect through the medical record, through surveys and things like that. So I do usually tend to include that in any survey that uh, is given to me that doesn't ask for sexual orientation or gender identity or cisgender versus transgender. I said, well, can we add this in there? You can always make it an optional question, but just by you asking it makes people feel more included. That's always my feedback. (laughs) Absolutely. Moving back into family medicine and sports medicine, what do you like about your specialty? And is there anything that you don't like about it? I mean, I really love being a family med sports med doc. The the only thing I wish is I had more hours in the day sometimes. I always feel bad when I I can't fit one more patient into my schedule because there's just not enough hours in the day. I do think that the military does an awesome job teaching an inclusive family medicine curriculum, inpatient, outpatient, obstetrics, sports medicine. And so I definitely am enjoying seeing the growth of the community. Many of our family medicine sites have started teaching more point of care ultrasound, which I think is an amazing skill to have regardless of your specialty. That's one area I can see definitely think growing and developing both in the sports med and the family med communities. That's one thing I I think will continue to improve. I'd love to see, and again, I'm starting to see it more and more, that diversity, equity, and inclusion are included as topics that are key to primary care providers or primary care physicians, particularly family medicine doctors. And certainly I make it my mission to make sure people are aware of and comfortable with taking care of LGBT family members, service members moving forward. Because again, I know it's something I had to learn, even being within the community, I've had to learn a lot. And so I want to be able to take it forward and teach it to the next generation so they can be even more engaged, involved and do more research and bring more science to it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking on that role and being a teacher. (laughs) You discussed leadership roles throughout this interview. How can we develop officership while in medical school and how do we continue to be strong officers in the military as we advance in our careers? That's a great question. As far as learning leadership, again, sometimes you can learn it even when you're not looking for it. So, you know, whether it be that president of a a club in medical school or um, taking charge of putting together an activity for medical students while you're on rotation at a location or taking roles of leadership in AMOPS, AMOPS, uh, USAFP, the different organizations for your specialty. Get out there and learn. 
there's definitely a role for people to lead. And sometimes that's leading your peers. Sometimes that's teaching people senior to you. And then sometimes it's going back and mentoring and teaching STEM programs, like at your high school or where you went to elementary school, especially those who are underrepresented in medicine, going back and being able to kind of show people, hey, I'm here, you can do this too. Um, That's certainly something that I've seen a lot of uh, people have success in doing and learn great leadership skills in doing. For female physicians, there are some awesome organizations out there. Again, I know I mentioned I'm a member of AMWA with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so they actually have roles for pre-pre-med all the way up through faculty positions. And then specific to gay and lesbian, GLAMA or GLMA also has some excellent conferences and ability for people to get involved. And that's throughout all specialties and throughout all types of, of healthcare providers in addition to physicians. So those have been some excellent places that I've been able to find leadership. As far as female leadership in the military, they do run a course every year. Typically this year it was virtual. Thank you, COVID. Um, (laughs) So the female physician leadership course is an excellent thing that I always recommend people try and get into. That usually comes up a little bit more, they call it like mid-career. I think it's Lieutenant Commanders and up typically for Navy and equal rank for other services. And then one other thing I I typically forget to mention that I just learned about recently is that oftentimes there are military non-medical specific things you can get involved with that will also teach you some excellent leadership skills that again, will carry over very well to medicine. Things like the SSLA, the Sea Service Leaders Association, I believe it's called. And then the Tri-Service also held something called OWLS recently, which I'd have to look up what that acronym stands for again, but talks a lot about women's leadership and and how to be involved and is a podcast. So thank you so much for all that advice, ma'am. Unfortunately, we only have time for one more question. What are some pitfalls we should avoid as physicians and officers? Well, one thing I always taught people is to make sure again, uh, to never talk down to those that are junior to you. So learn from everybody that you interact with, because again, even the most junior corpsman has something to teach you. Another thing I learned very early in my career was to respect and learn from the chief's mess too, because especially in the Navy, if you have a solid chief with you, they will make sure you don't fail in whatever leadership endeavor you go into. So that's certainly been one thing that I've, I've learned from people Within the medical community, the one thing I've always learned from all the nurses I've worked with is take care of and respect your nurses as well. So don't ever think you know more because you're the doctor. Even though we have a DO or an MD after our name, we are not all knowing. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. That wraps up our episode with Commander Mara today. For anyone who is interested, Amanda Mara published her editorial in AFP this month on transgender athletes. The link will be provided in the description. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your experiences with us future military physicians. And for those of you listening, if you have any recommendations for the podcast or anything you'd like to hear in particular, feel free to email samopseducationchair at gmail.com. And thanks for tuning in. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Navy, 
Department of Defense, nor the U.S. government.